in your pulpit. It's a great responsibility. I'm grateful to Will and Nick and the session uh, for their entrusting to me this responsibility, and I'm grateful to you for um, your part in that. We're going to read from the New Testament, from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. Before we do that, let's pray. Our dear Father, we pray that you would give light to our mind, fill our hearts with love for your word, and give us courage so that as we hear what you say to us, we may respond with ready and joyful obedience through Christ our Lord. Amen. This particular incident in the life of Jesus marks the Monday before the Friday that he would give his life for the sins of the world. And you remember that when he came into Jerusalem on the day before, on Sunday, what we often refer to as Palm Sunday, he came in amidst the shouts, Hosanna to the highest, in the highest, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And you remember the first thing he did? He went right to the temple and he saw there people uh, exchanging money and selling sacrificial animals. Nothing wrong with that, really. I mean, when you think about it, to worship in the um, temple, you had to have a sacrifice, right? That was the nature of worship there. And many people that worshiped in the temple didn't live in Jerusalem. They came from great distances. And so they had to have a way to purchase their sacrifice there. The only trouble was that the temple authorities had so exorbitantly uh, increased the price that many people could not worship or it put them in jeopardy to pay those prices. Now, do you think that would make Jesus mad? That, that people can't worship God because they can't afford to? And that's why he said, you know, as he did, uh, my father's house is called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. People were actually robbing would-be worshipers. Well, you can imagine that he not only, not only did he upset the tables of the money changers, but he uh, upset the temple authorities. And so the next morning when he showed up in the temple again to teach, they interrupted him and they said, uh, who gave you the authority to do this? And, and they became the first of a whole series of groups that appeared to question Jesus, not because they were curious about what he might say or because they wanted to understand his take on things, but because they wanted to stump him. They wanted to discredit him in the eyes of the people. They wanted to be done with him. Until we get to this particular incident, this man, a scribe, that's an expert in the law, shows up in the temple and he walks in on an argument that Jesus is having with a group of religious leaders. And we pick up there. Mark 12, 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well. That's a key statement that Mark makes there. Seeing that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. When the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You've truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. Hmm. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The university I attended was a church-related school, and so we would have, occasionally, we'd have on campus uh, somewhat notorious speakers, presumably to talk to us on some religious topic and I hadn't been there very long, and I heard this one man who had come, an expert in something. I don't remember now what it was, but I remember what he said, and it it caught my attention because it created a season of struggle for me. He said, if Jesus is the answer, what is the question? And I could sense when I heard him say those words that he was a skeptic. And to give him the benefit of the doubt, perhaps all he was doing was trying to disabuse our young minds of our untested and naive uh, convictions. But what it did to me is it created a, a turmoil within. And I began to wonder, is Jesus irrelevant? Does he have nothing to offer to us moderns? Is he simply a relic of history to be locked away in a treasure box and stored in a closet? And I had a hard time with it. But as I wrestled with it, I began to realize that the most important questions that people ask, questions like, who am I? Why am I here? Is there a purpose to my life? And if so, what is it? Where am I headed? And is there a God? And if there is, can I know him? And if I can, how? And is there life after death? And if there is, what then? And if there is eternity, how will I spend it? Those are the, aren't those the most important questions? that People may not ask them consciously, but they're at least the background noise behind every moment's thoughts. And I ask you, is, if those are the questions, is not Jesus the answer? That's what this scribe discovered as he asked his question of Jesus. That Jesus not only has the answers, but that he is the answer. Is that true for you? I suspect that most people will look almost anywhere and everywhere else besides to Jesus for the answers to their questions. But what about you? If you're defined in Jesus the answer to the most pressing questions that you have, then there are three realities that you will need to come to grips with. One is 
the most important question. A second is the most important answer, and a third is the most important response. And that's what this passage does for us. It, it lays out those three realities for us. First, it gives us the most important question. This scribe showed up, and as I said, he, he overheard a dispute between Jesus and some religious authorities, and Mark says that, let's read that verse 28 again, He came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that Jesus answered them well. The first thing I want you to notice about this scribe is that he had the right spirit in asking his question. Everyone who had gone before him that day, and there was one group after another after another who came to Jesus with their questions, but every one of them came in a spirit of hostility. They hated Jesus and they wanted him to fail, but not this man. He didn't know Jesus, but as he listened to Jesus, there was something that drew him to him. And he truly, sincerely wanted to know, what would Jesus say about the most pressing question in my life? And and look what it was. Which commandment is the most important of all? (laughs) Now, is that a pressing question for you? Maybe you wouldn't phrase it that way, but think about what a commandment is. What all of the commandments are, they are expressions of what? The the law of God. And what is the law of God? It's his will for us, isn't it? It's what he wants us to be and do. And you might wonder, well, is that important? Is the will of God the most important thing? Is knowing what it is the most important question I can ask? Well, Let's take a couple of test cases. You may recall a story from your Bible where Jesus and his disciples are passing through Samaria and they stop at Jacob's well near the village of Sychar and that's where Jesus meets the woman at the well. And that's a great story and maybe we can talk about that another time, but it was about noon and what I want you to see from this story today is that it was close to lunchtime and Jesus' disciples had gone into the village to to get lunch. And when they came back, there they had it. They'd, They'd purchased it. They were ready to sit down and eat. And Jesus said, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And they looked at one another and they were puzzled and they thought, did somebody else bring him lunch? And then he clarified. He said, my food is to do what? The will of my Father in heaven. You see what Jesus has done here is he's compared the will of God with the food that nourishes our bodies. I tell you, you won't live very long if you don't eat. Food is essential to your health. But Jesus was willing to pass up food if it meant It enabled him more readily to do God's will. For him, doing God's will was a question of survival. Let me give you another case in point. That Thursday night before our Lord laid down his life for us on Calvary, you remember he was in a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was praying. He knew what was ahead. He was filled with sorrow and he prayed earnestly. In fact, Luke says that 
the, the sweat dropping from his brow was like great drops of blood. That's how intensely he was praying. And what did he pray? Father, if there is any way, let this cup pass from me. What cup? The cup of God's wrath, which would be poured out upon him the next day. The wrath of God for your sins and, and mine and for the sins of the whole world. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. The physical torture that Jesus was to endure is beyond our imagination, but the spiritual anguish of this sinless, innocent man bearing the ugliness and the wickedness of a whole world is beyond understanding. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But that's not where Jesus' prayer stopped, is it? What else did he say? You remember. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. For Jesus, the will of God is a life and death matter. Is it important? How can it not be? This is the most important question of all. What, what, is, what this man was asking Jesus is, what is God's will? And the way he phrased it was, what is the most important commandment of all? But that's essentially what he's saying is, what does God want me to be and do? And so look how Jesus answers. This is the most important answer. Uh, beginning in verse 29, we read, Jesus answered, the most important is... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now, what's Jesus doing here? Essentially, what he's doing is he's quoting scripture. Uh, when he said the first and most important commandment is this, he quoted Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, the passage that Elder Buckner read just a few moments ago. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your strength and with all your mind. Your Jewish neighbors call that the Shema. And if they're Orthodox, they literally do have a plate or a box at their doorpost with those words on it. It's, it's the heartfelt confession of every practicing uh, Jew. They call it the Shema. That's, that's Hebrew for hear. Hear, O Israel. Listen, this is what God wants you to be and do. Love the Lord your God with all your being. The second commandment, we call these together the great commandment, right? The second great commandment is, again, a quotation from Scripture. You'll find it in Leviticus Chapter 19, verse 18. And if you were to turn there, you see these very words, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And, and what these two commandments do is they aptly summarize the Ten Commandments. Think about it with me, if you will. We often think of the Ten Commandments as being given in the two tablets of the law. In fact, you'll often see them represented as two stones. And what's written there is <laughs> written in stone. 
And the first four commandments have to do with our relationship with God, right? You shall have no other gods before me. Uh, you shall not make a graven image and worship it. In other words, you shall worship God the way he wants to be worshipped. You shall not take God's name in vain. You'll remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Those four commandments, that first tablet of the law, are expressed in this first great commandment. You want to know how to, how to love God? Do these things. Set your heart on him. The second great commandment summarizes the other tablet of the law, those other six commandments in the Big Ten. You know, honor your father and mother. Don't kill each other. Don't cheat on each other. Don't steal from each other. Don't lie to and about each other. And don't want what each other has. You want to know how to love your neighbor? Treat your neighbor in accordance with those laws. It's what Jesus was telling us. It's the most important answer. Look at the most important response. Let's see how this scribe responded to Jesus. Beginning in verse 32, we read, And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. <laughs> imagine, imagine saying to Jesus, You're right. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's one of those, it goes without saying things, right? But that's what he did. He was so filled with receptivity. And Jesus, everything Jesus said in those few words resonated with him. And he just erupted with these words, you are right, teacher. You have truly said, that is, you've spoken the truth when you say that God is one and there is no other besides him and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbors, oneself is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. This scribe had picked up on what God himself had said repeatedly in the Old Testament. That the spirit of the law is more important than the letter of the law. See, that's, that's where so many of the religious leaders of Jesus' day missed it. They, they, were, they were meticulous in keeping the letter of the law. But there was no love in it. It wasn't an expression of love. It was an expression of obligation. And in some cases, probably an attempt to draw admiration and respect from others. Jesus said they love to be seen as uh, the spiritual go-to people. But there was no heart in it. And you see, one thing you can't escape is that when Jesus talks about the law here, he's talking about a, a matter of the heart. He's talking about loving God and loving others. How many commandments do you think there are, say in the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible, well, I didn't go through and count them, but I read somewhere there are 613. And I don't know how many of them deal with whole burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I'm going to guess a major portion of them. 
If, read the book of Leviticus. I mean, every sacrifice that the people of Israel were expected to bring to the tabernacle at the first and to the temple later, every sacrifice is laid out in, in detail. When to do it, how to do it, what to bring, all of that sort of thing. There's a lot of ink spilled in the Old Testament on those matters. But notice what this man says. To love God and to love our neighbor is more important than all of that. God himself had said, uh, Isaiah chapter 1, who authorized this trampling of my courts and all of these, these sacrifices you make? I'm weary with them. Why? Because they weren't offered in love. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, the Lord says to us, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. This man got it. And, and look what Jesus said to him. Verse 33, excuse me, verse 34. And when Jesus saw that, when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now let me just say, that is a place that is fraught with both possibility and danger. Because what is it to be not far from the kingdom of God and yet not in it? You know, they say close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. and A miss is as good as a mile. And if you're not far from the kingdom of God, what is it that will bring you across the threshold and into it? It's something more than this man, at least on this occasion, had grasped. He saw Jesus as the truth. Isn't that what he said to him? He said, you've answered truthfully, Lord. Or teacher, he called him. You've answered truthfully. He saw in Jesus the truth. But remember, Jesus said he was not only the truth. He said about himself that he is the way. It's John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the door. He is the way. And you see, so far as we know, now... We pray that this man may later have seen Jesus as the way to God's heart. But at this point, he's still outside the door because he didn't see Jesus as the way. What we've been looking at here is purely and simply the law of God. I remember hearing another speaker on another occasion who contended that these very words of Jesus right here in Mark 12 were the heart of Christianity. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. It sounds good, doesn't it? But even as I was listening, I thought, no. No, this is the fruit of Christianity, but it's not the heart of it. The heart of it is Jesus. He is the way. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 3 that no one 
will be declared right in God's eyes by keeping the law. Why not? Not because the law is not a good thing to keep. It is a good thing to keep, but none of us have done it. Paul says through law comes the knowledge of sin. And isn't that the way it is? The law can't save us. All it does is serve as a mirror. And as we look into that mirror, what do we see? We see all of our flaws. We see all of our failures. The law is good, but it points out our bad. And it cannot save us. How many of you would say with me, I certainly have not consistently, perfectly, every hour, every day, loved the Lord my God with all my heart and all my being. And the truth is, I haven't even loved my neighbor as much as I love myself. Not always, not completely, not perfectly. And I stand undone before this law. I may be not far from the kingdom, but I don't want to be there. I want to be in the kingdom. And there's only one way in, and that's grace. Grace is what God does for us that we cannot do for ourselves. Let me say that again. Grace is what God does for us that we cannot do for ourselves. That's why this table is a symbol of grace. Here is offered to you nourishment for your soul. It's, it expresses to us what God has done for us in Jesus Christ that we could never do for ourselves. His broken body, his shed blood are exemplified for us in the broken bread and the cup poured out. It's all of grace. It's given to us. Does that mean that then we're exempt from keeping the law? No. No. Because remember, Jesus said not only is he the way and the truth, but he's also the life. And and once we have come to know God through Christ, there is born in us such a responsiveness to him that it becomes our desire to please him. And how are we going to please him who has done so much for us? Well, what does he want us to be? What does he want us to do? Well, the law shows us. The greatest commandment of all shows us. And here, the law becomes not just a mirror, but a map. Not so that we can gain God's favor, but because we have received God's favor. And because we have, in gratitude, we respond to him by being what he wants us to be. And what does he want us to be? Lovers all. Lovers of God and lovers of others. It's the most important thing of all. Will you pray with me? Oh Lord our God, there may be someone here who's been looking for a way into the kingdom. They've felt like maybe they weren't that far but they haven't found the path across the threshold. May their hearts hear and understand today that that way is Christ. And may they cast themselves upon him and come to know the life that he gives. 
And for those who know that life, oh Lord, help us to live it. We sang a moment ago, and you alone, oh Lord, can give us grace to live the words we say. Help us to live those words that we say through Christ. It's in his name we ask it. Amen.